We give thanks to You, O God. We give thanks for Your wondrous works declare that Your name is near. That's a remarkable statement by the psalmist. Asaph wrote these words and he was looking to his God and recognizing that God is in control. And he was able to say, in spite of all of the trouble that was happening around him, we give thanks to you, O Lord. But then he goes on to speak from God's perspective, as though God were speaking. And I believe by the Holy Spirit of God, Asaph was given these particular words to continue in this great Psalm 75, where he says in verse 2, When I choose the proper time, this is God speaking, when I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly. I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high, he says. Do not speak with a stiff neck. He's warning those who do so. And he says, because of this, for exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Keep this in mind, people of God. God puts men in power that He chooses to be in power for a particular purpose and a particular time. And perhaps for such a time as this, we are now in this present age experiencing all those things that are taking place around us in the world, in our local governments, in our schools, in our workforces, for a reason, because God is, I believe, in control. And He does exalt whoever He chooses. He puts down whoever He chooses. Finally, in verse 8, He says, For in the hand, this is the reason, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. And the wine is red, it is fully mixed, and He pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. He's warning, again, those who reject Him, There is a price to pay for that rejection. There is a cost involved. No one will escape such rejection of God if they continue in that rejection. He he ends this wonderful psalm with a promise to all who believe. He says, but I... That's another but God statement. And I love it when God says, but God. He does so here. But I will declare forever... I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. So listen, people. In the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament, there is a very, very straightforward opinion that is given to us by God. And remember, when God has an opinion, it's fact. My opinion doesn't matter. Your opinion doesn't matter. We all have opinions, but they don't necessarily play out the way that we would like them to, and our opinions sometimes fall flat, don't they? But God's never does. And God says here, I will. And when God says, I will, you better take it to the bank. It's a fact. It's truth. It's absolute truth. There is a distinction in the Old Testament and the New Testament between the wicked and the righteous. He gives us this grand knowledge that we have through His Word that we can be fully convinced of. He says again in verse 10 of this great psalm, All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. The righteous will not suffer what the unrighteous are going to have to suffer with. The righteous will be saved from the wrath of God, delivered from the wrath of God. This is what the Word of God says. It's so very plain in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. How could we confuse the Word of God so easily in our present day? And there are many who are much opposed to what I will be sharing here today because they don't want to accept that God is a God of judgment as well as a God of love. He's both. And He wants everyone to know that He loves all the world. Did He not say so? 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him shall be saved. How much more plain can God be? It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to saving grace, foundational truth. This is what God has said. I don't want anyone to go to hell. I'm not sending anyone there. It's your choice to make. And that's what he's trying to convince everybody in this present hour of. We are in a place where things are going to be taking place faster and faster, and as time continues to move forward, it just simply means that we're getting that much closer to that day that we all know of as the day of the Lord. That day, a time, a period of days, not just one single 24-hour day, but a period, an epoch. And it begins from different points of view, at specific times in the life cycle of humanity. For instance, Peter and John both said that they, almost 2,000 years ago, were in the last days. Is that true? Yes, of course it is. But we also know that the last days, from a different point of view, from a church point of view, began on the day of Pentecost, when the church was born, established. From that day on until this present hour, we've been living in the last days. That also is true. But it also is true that the last days aren't really going to begin until the church is removed. Because that's really how the Scripture pours out all of these truths and combines them all into one simple reality. God is in control. And it's by his choosing of the time that he makes the decision to move. And that's why he says, in again, Psalm 75, when I choose the proper time. And that's why David said in Psalm 119, verse 126, Lord, look around. It's time for you to act. I submit to you that each one of us could be saying that very thing to God every day of our lives. Wake up in the morning and remind God, Lord, it's time for you to act. Look around. Realize what's happening. Is AI a problem? It's not for the church. It's going to be used by the Antichrist. But it has to be in place in order for the Antichrist to do the things that the book says he is going to do and accomplish. Digital currency. Is that something we should be fearful of? No. We're the church. It doesn't matter what they do in this world. So what? But that is something that I believe will be used by the Antichrist. Take a look at the book of Revelation where it says, No man can buy or sell unless they have the mark of the beast. There's a control, a monetary control that will result in the Antichrist being able to have that kind of control over all of the monetary systems of the world. It's happening. It's getting close. They're working in that direction. But don't be fearful of that. Just know that it's coming. It has to come. And yes, we're still here. And yes, we're seeing all of these things. But don't be fearful about them because they're not going to be used by the enemy until we're out of his way. What about all of the various things that are going on with regard to sexual orientation. The drag queens. You thought that same-sex marriage was bad. You haven't seen anything yet. It's going to continue to get worse. Does that impact us? Well, of course it does. We're offended by these things. We're troubled by all of that stuff that's going on in our communities and how wokeness has been embraced by so many people that we know, even among those who are in the church. Don't let that be a reason for you to doubt what God has said. It is exactly as God said. It's happening. Things are going in the direction that God intended for them to go. Nothing has taken Him by surprise. And why do we think that we should be 
able to just live out our lives without any problems and not see any of these things that we know are going to be used by Satan sometime down the road, but do they have to be coming in the midst of the the church as we stand? Are, Are we not a restraining force? Well, yes. The answer to that, yes, yes, and yes. We are a restraining force. But that doesn't mean that we're stopping the evil from being more and more prevalent. We're just slowing it down a little bit. And I believe that's God's purpose. I believe that's part of God's plan. But while we're here, we'll still continue to have the ability, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to shine His light in a dark world. We're still the salt of the earth. We still have work to do. There are people that still need to be saved. There are so many things that we need to be mindful of as we live out our lives from day to day until the time that God says, it is finished. Jesus said, it is finished on the cross. There's coming a day when God will say, that's it. No more church. Go get your bride, Jesus. We're going to move in the next phase of our plan And that next phase is a phase of wrath of God. Psalm 75 again, pointing that out to us, is a cup that is filled and they will drink it. The righteous won't. Look at that psalm again. Read it carefully. It says the unrighteous will be drinking that. Down to the very dregs. Oh, that doesn't sound very tasteful to me. It's fully mixed. He pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. That will not be a pleasant experience. But it's not for the church. It's not for the righteous. It's for the ungodly. I say all of this because what we have been looking at in our study through 1 Thessalonians has been the statements that Paul gave to a church that was very young in the Lord but that had been trained by Paul in just a very short time with regard to the end times. And that Thessalonian church were given information by the Apostle Paul with regard to a few things that are yet to come. Talking about the rapture of the church, talking about the Antichrist, talking about the last days, talking about the various things that will take place when Christ returns and sets his feet upon Mount Zion and reigns in Jerusalem. Those are things that have not yet been seen by anyone. They're not ready yet. They will be. I think they're getting close. So we need to be mindful of those things. Paul wanted the Thessalonian church to be mindful of those things because, frankly, Paul was among those who said, we will not suffer the wrath of God. He anticipated that that wrath might be coming in his lifetime. But he said, we will not suffer God's wrath. He said it more than once in 1 Thessalonians. He told us that the church will be taken out and then the unrighteous will be judged. He gave us enough information that we can draw conclusions. But the church doesn't all feel exactly the same with regard to those things that Paul said. But I'm here to tell you that this is what I believe the Lord has given to us. And he has put it in a way that can be understood. He has put it in a way that if we open our minds and our eyes to what God's word declares, we can get a sense for how things are going to play out. Not when, but how. And that's why we have been emphatic in our conviction as this church, Safe Harbor Church, Your pastor believes in what is known as a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. I'm convinced of that. Now, you may be convinced of some other time frame or time pattern that you might be more apt to think is the better understanding of God's Word. That's up to you to decide. I'm not here to condemn anyone who thinks differently than I do with regard to what is known as eschatology, the end times events. Let's be frank. Let's be honest with each other. None of us knows exactly with certainty how things are going to happen or when. But we have things that we have been able to see from God's Word and we have things that we've been able to see that are taking place in the world around us and we can draw some conclusions. That's what Paul did. Paul made some 
conclusions with regard to the timing, perhaps, of those events that he spoke of. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul did say, with regard to the taking out of the church, that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. Does that mean then that Paul thought that he would be alive when Christ comes for his church? I believe yes, it does. Was Paul wrong about the rapture? No, he wasn't. But he believed in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And now, almost 2,000 years ago, we still teach the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Nothing has to be fulfilled scripturally in order for that return of Christ for the church event will take place. So that's what we learned out of First Thessalonians, studying through those first five chapters. Remember, in every one of those five chapters of First Thessalonians, there was inclusion of the reference to the coming of the Lord for His church. It's a marvelous book. We need to read it carefully and study it carefully. Now we have before us his second letter to the Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians was written probably around three to six months after First Thessalonians. Paul is still in Corinth. He's still in Corinth with Timothy and with Silvanus or Silas. And he's writing this second epistle to the Thessalonians in response to some more questions that they apparently had. Because after receiving that first letter from the Thessalonians, or to the Thessalonians, they had more questions. They sent another, perhaps, a group of men down to Corinth to ask further, can you clarify what's taking place after that? After the rapture? They were concerned about it because they were going through a great deal of persecution. Also, we find in the second letter of Thessalonians that apparently they had received letters that appeared to be from Paul that spoke of the fact, apparently, that the rapture had already taken place and they were going through the tribulation already. And so they were wondering, Paul, what's going on here? They sent somebody down to Corinth to ask Paul for more clarification, and that's what Paul is doing here in Second Thessalonians. He's recorded for us more detail with regard to the end times in Second Thessalonians, not about the rapture, but about the second coming and about the events that will be sandwiched between those two events. So here we have in Second Thessalonians a great, marvelous work that God has given to us so much information. And it behooves us to study it well, to honestly apply what is being spoken to the Thessalonian church. It's to us as well that he writes these words. Turn with me to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. There's only three chapters in this particular letter. It's short, but it's got a lot of meat. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, that is almost precisely word for word what he wrote in First Thessalonians. It's a standard greeting that Paul began to use, especially with the words grace and peace. You'll find those words combined in almost all of Paul's writings. Paul wanted everybody to know that he was writing these words for a reason. Grace comes always before peace. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is given by God. It's by grace through faith that you are saved, that not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. It's a gift of God. Grace must come first. Without grace, you could not have peace. Jesus had said, Peace I give you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives, give I to you. My peace. And you can only have His peace if you know His grace. His grace is sufficient. His grace is from the Father to us. Unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. We're not worthy of it. And yet we're going to see in this passage that He speaks of our worthiness. This is a great, wonderful testimony of God's grace in the lives of believers everywhere. But he begins again this same letter, Second Thessalonians, as he did the first letter to Thessalonians, 
talking about the fact that Paul was with Silvanus or Silas and Timothy. Together they were writing this letter. Paul is going to use the first person. It is his words and they are in agreement with him as he writes these words and then sends this letter on to the Thessalonian church for them to read. And they kept it and copied it and we now have it before us. That's grace too, by the way. The grace of God that allows these letters written almost 2,000 years ago to still be available for us to read and apply as the very Word of God. In verse 3 he says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. Paul recognized the fact that they were indeed a church that was ministering to one another, a church that was caring for one another, meeting each other's needs, being mindful of everybody's issues that they had to face, and praying with each other, and helping each other out in any way that they could, in spite of the various things that they were having to go through, and there were many things that they were suffering. Paul alludes to that in the next several verses. He says, So that we also ourselves boast of you among the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Verse 5 says, Which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Wait a minute. Persecution, trials, tribulations, enduring such things is evidence of God's judgment? Does that mean that God is judging the church? No, that's not what Paul says at all. You need to read the whole verse. The judgment isn't against the church. The judgment is against those who hate the church. He goes on to say that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you all who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Paul is saying here, you're going through tribulation, you're going through difficult times, you're suffering persecution because God is going to be judging the world as a result of what that happens to be taking place in your situation. In other words, the world that hates the church is going to be judged by God. And you, the church, are going to rest in knowing that that judgment is a righteous judgment. And knowing that that church that we are a part of will not be part of that judgment. Take notice of what he says again. He says in verse 7, to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Verse 7 is a key verse here. He's saying that we can have rest. In one of the Psalms, I love to read the Psalms because they so refresh me. Every time I read something from the Psalms, it really ministers to me. And I do it daily for that reason. I want to be refreshed by God's Spirit. I want to be encouraged by God's Spirit. Spirit and how He does so wonderfully on my behalf as I read His Word. And I, convent, I, I, I hope that I'm conveying something to you that you will be excited about doing the same. Read God's Word with anticipation that He wants to speak favor to you. He wants to speak peace to you. He wants to speak His rest to you, hope to you, promises that you can take and apply to yourself daily. But in the Psalms, one of the things that the psalmist says, My rest is in you. My strength is in you. My hope is in you. There's a key phrase, in you. If you are in Christ, you have all of those things as benefits to you. Is Christ in you? Are you in Him? Then if you have that, you have life. And that's what God has promised us. That's what God has given to us. This 
rest that Paul is speaking of here is a rest that comes only from knowing His promises. Only from receiving His forgiveness. Only from applying His righteousness in your own life and in mine can we say, I have rest in God. He has given us rest. Though we're troubled on every side, though we're facing persecutions, and we're not really in this world, but there are many in the church today all around the world that are suffering persecution and some are dying for their faith. Does that mean that God has forgotten them? Does that mean that God has forsaken them? Absolutely not. God is using that, demonstrating to the world that the church still is and always has been His church. And that no matter what the world can do, they will not snuff out this church that is the ecclesia of God. The assembled ones. That's what the word ecclesia means. It's what we translate the word as church. This building is not the church. You and I are the church. We collectively are the church of Christ. We collectively are the bride of Christ. We're sons and daughters of the living God. We have an heritage. We have an inheritance in Him. We have promises that He has made to us because He loves us. And we have received that love by faith. And as a result of our having received everything that He has promised, we are indeed truly blessed among all people. So what does it matter if He kills a few of us in the process? We're with Him. That can't be changed. That's why Jesus said over and over again how emphatically He spoke of the things that pertain to us as we are in Christ. He gave this promise. Abide in Me. Why? So that you can bear much fruit. Abide in Me, He said. That means stay attached to the vine. Don't let go. Don't give up. Don't break away from that which you have been receiving from Him, the very source of life. Abide in Him. In Him. You'll find that phrase, in Him, throughout the New Testament. Apply it. Use it. Bring glory to God through it in your own life. Then you'll know the peace of God. And you'll have rest in spite of whatever might happen around you in spite of those things that the world can do. And they are doing a lot of different things that really are absolutely heinous. And God will, I believe, judge. The only reason I'm convinced, by the way, of the fact that this nation has not been judged is because we purport to be Israel's friend. In the Old Testament, in the book of Kings, over and over again, we read the kings of Judah. Some were good, Some were not so good. But every one of the kings that succeeded the throne were descendants of David. The dynasty never ended until the Babylonian captivity. But every one of those kings, whether good or bad, were judged based upon God's assessment of how they fared with regard to what they accomplished and compared to what David had done. And God said over and over again to those bad kings, you have not been judged because of David, for the sake of David. But finally, that judgment did come. That judgment did come to the nation of Judah because they had taken so many steps backward that God finally said, I'll give them over to their reprobate minds. And He did that. There was a cost. God will judge this nation also. But I believe because we have been friends with Israel that that judgment will not yet fall. President Biden is in discussions with Saudi Arabia And what they want to do is they want to have some kind of diplomatic agreement between Saudi Arabia and the United States. And it's directly connected to our relationship with Israel. Biden is pushing for 
another treaty with Iran. They want Saudi Arabia's, Arabia's position to be established in connection with that. Saudi Arabia and Iran have been enemies. Well, they're all Muslims, yes, but Iran happens to be Shiite. Saudi Arabia happens to be Sunni. They don't agree with one another. They are both, and have been for many years, enemies against one another. Saudi Arabia knows that Iran is feeding Yemen with missiles and artillery that are being launched into Saudi Arabia from Yemen. They're just a proxy of Iran. So there's a very, very difficult balance that needs to be made in this region. There was a time when Saudi Arabia was very seriously considering, and they still are very seriously considering, a relationship with Israel that has been completely unheard of up till now. The Abraham Accords that began to unfold while President Trump was in office and Bahrain and UAE and some of the other nations that began to make friends with Israel, Saudi Arabia almost was there. Part of the arrangement that might convince them to do such a thing is to have an oil pipeline from Saudi Arabia across Jordan into Israel to the Mediterranean Sea for a more direct route for exporting their oil. They want that. In exchange, Israel wants the right of passage over the skies of Saudi Arabia to be able to attack Iran if the time should come for them to do so. Well, they've been given some degree of flexibility with that regard. Saudi Arabia has already said, we will not be bothered if Israeli aircraft fly in our airspace. We'll look the other way. I believe that part of the arrangement that Mr. Biden is about to make with Saudi Arabia and with Iran has to do with the Saudis allowing Israel to continue that flexibility with their aircraft over Saudi territory. If he can close that window, it's less likely for Israel to be able to attack preemptively against Iran. That doesn't stop Iran from taking what they've already developed and using it to attack Israel. Mr. Biden has gone to the Middle East to talk with the Saudis about these various things, but he refuses to go to Iran, uh, Israel to talk with Benjamin Netanyahu. Whose friend is he? What's he trying to accomplish? I say all of that because that's just one of many things that are taking place in a world that are under the carpet, if you will. They're not really being spoken of by NBC and ABC and CBS, as are so many other things that they should be talking about, but they're not. They're covering things up. They're not really willing to talk about those things that really they are not excited about. But we should be excited about them because these are end times events. These are things that we need to be careful to watch and understand. What is the implication? What are the reasons that these things are taking place? And how does it impact us as a church? It's because judgment is coming. And I believe that judgment will fall on this nation if this nation continues down the path that we are headed. And if they make an agreement with Saudi Arabia that excludes Israel in the way that I've described or in some other way. All it will take is for Israel to say we have no friends. And that would be fulfillment. And that will be, I think, a major turn. And I believe that there is coming a day very soon when if that does happen, we're going to see some missiles flying. I've never really understood exactly how God's going to work things out. I remember Chuck Smith commenting back in 2012. He says, I know things are happening that 
The final stage is being set. That was his comment. The final stage is being set. But he really didn't understand how God was going to work out the details of the Ezekiel War found in chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel. Because at that time, Turkey and Israel were friends. Israel considered Turkey a great vacation spot. They had things going on between them that gave everybody the impression that there's nothing wrong with the relationship between Turkey and Israel. But man, did that change in 2016. It had to change, and it did. God's pulling the strings. He's orchestrating all of these events. Turkey and Russia working side by side in Syria? How could that possibly be? Let's take a look. It's a reality. Russia is not interested in what the Arabs want with regard to Israel. They don't care about this religion of the Iranians. So how could they partner with Iran? Fifteen years ago, that was not very likely. Take a look around. God puts the hook in their jaw. And at the appropriate time, like it says in Psalm 45, 75, He will do that which needs to be done in order to accomplish everything that He has spoken. So when we read such things as verse 7 in first, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, Are you troubled? Rest in Him. Know that the Lord is coming. And when He is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, we will have been taken home to be with Him. And then takes place the remainder of what Paul says in chapter 1 and following. Read carefully verse 8 with me. In flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to make sure that you understand Paul is talking about the judgment of God falling on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. The judgment does not fall on the church. The church is removed from that judgment. There's no question Paul is making a distinction here that we should recognize and acknowledge as truth. The church is not going to experience the judgment of God, the wrath of God. The time of Jacob's trouble is reserved for a Christ-rejecting world. I'm reminded that in the Old Testament Scriptures, we see examples of this. And one of the most important, I believe, of those examples is found in Genesis. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot, you may recall, the nephew of Abraham, had chosen the more fertile land to raise his sheep, found on the other side of the Jordan River, by the Dead Sea. It wasn't dead then. It was very fertile and very pleasant land. Lot was attracted to that. They needed to separate because they had both grown so large. So Abraham said to Lot, you go ahead and choose where you want to go. And Lot chose there, and Abraham chose to stay in that area where he was, down around uh, the territory of southern Judah today, or Israel today, he took the less attractive and let his nephew have the more attractive. But that greater attraction for Lot also drew him from being a shepherd of sheep to becoming a delegate in Sodom. He sat at the gate He ultimately was drawn to that culture. They happened to be a culture that was an offense to God. And you can read all the various information you want with regard to Sodom and Gomorrah, and you will find that the real reason that God judged them is for their sexuality. God judged the homosexual in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
that doesn't mean he hates homosexuals. But he judged the sin of homosexuality. But as a result of that judgment, God told Abraham, I'm going to destroy them. And Abraham began to make an appeal when he heard that Sodom and Gomorrah would be judged. And he said, well, well Lord, can, can, I, can I ask you, you know, you're a righteous God, and would you do unrighteousness? God forbid. Would, would you judge Sodom and Gomorrah if there were 50 righteous in Sodom? The Lord's response was, no, I won't destroy it if there are 50. And Abraham then was emboldened by that. And he said, well, well okay, but what if there's only 40? Will you judge it for 40? No. If there are 40, I will not judge. Well, what about 30? No, I won't judge for 30. Can I ask again, what about 20? No, I won't judge it if there are 20. Oh, God, don't be angry with me if I ask one more time. What if there's only ten? And again, God's response is, if there are ten, I will not judge the city. He did judge the city. Both of Sodom and Gomorrah and other cities around because of that corruption. But before he did, what did the angels do? They removed Lot and his family. His two daughters, his wife, were all that were taken out of the city. But they were taken out of the city and they could not bring the judgment that God had planned against those cities until the righteous were removed. You see the picture? The righteous must be removed in order for judgment to fall. That's why... It's an Old Testament example of, I believe, what God is saying in the New Testament. We, the church, are the righteous that will be removed before judgment falls. And Paul again speaks those things here. In verse 7, he talks about the saving of us from that judgment that we can rest with the Lord Jesus when He is revealed in heaven, not on the earth, but in heaven, and then comes, in verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Plain as day, simple truth. It's the Word of God. I can't make it up. I can't change it. It is what God says. There are many other examples, both in the Old and the New Testament, by the way. And I just mentioned the one. Noah is another example of that which God has done. He took the righteous out of the righteous out of the judgment when the floods came. He goes on to verse nine in First Second Thessalonians chapter one. And he says, these shall be punished. Who are these? The unrighteous that he mentioned in verse 8. Not the righteous, but the unrighteous. These shall be judged with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Everlasting destruction. It's the only place in the Word of God where those two words are used, the original Greek words. Everlasting means everlasting. Destruction does not mean annihilation. I say that because there are those who believe that, well, there's no such thing really as hell because God speaks of eternal life, and then he speaks of eternal death. And their opinion is that what God is going to do with the ungodly is just annihilate them. They'll be gone. They won't exist. That makes a lot of people feel a little bit more comfortable about things, but it's not what the Word of God says. Paul specifically chose these two words, everlasting destruction. And I believe that what he's saying here, and it's clear in other places that he is speaking of this, that this word destruction isn't annihilation, but it's ruination. 
The idea is conveyed by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 25. Read that with me. Matthew 25, verse 46. In Matthew 25, Jesus is telling his disciples that there is coming a time when he is going to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. And the unrighteous, when they are judged, will be seeing this particular promise fulfilled in themselves. In verse 46 of chapter 25 of the book of Matthew, these, those unrighteous, will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Well, okay, so does that mean that everlasting then must be a different meaning than eternal, right? Wrong. In the Greek, they're the same word, ionios. Eons. It means forever. Both the word everlasting in our English translations and eternal are the same word in the original language. Make no mistake. Jesus himself talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. There is a hell that God has prepared for the angels, we're told. But because men have chosen to reject his offer of salvation, then they will be making a choice to go in that place of separation rather than going into His presence. Everlasting destruction is just another way of saying outside of God's presence. Another word that is used or phrase that is used is outer darkness. If you believe that hell is just a place of annihilation and you don't think you mind having that happen just so that you can live out your life the way you choose you want to live it, you are absolutely wrong in your understanding of God's Word. And you are living dangerously if you think that you can live your way and not suffer the consequences. There is a price to pay for that which you have been willing to allow yourself to participate in if you are entering into any kind of sin and loving it. Then you need to understand that God's Word is very clear. There's a cost to you. And it's an eternal cost. Jesus said, where their worm never dies, their thirst is never quenched. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here with regard to that which is the destiny of those who have rejected His promise of life? Outside of God's presence, continual, eternal damnation. I hope that's sinking in. Eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Separated. We see physical phenomena that imply that there are such things as black holes in outer space. In our galaxy, in the center of our galaxy, they believe that they've actually been able to see visually a black hole. There are some other places that they have observed that they have looked at with regard to this phenomenon. And the conclusions that they're making is that no light can escape from that which used to be perhaps a very large sun that imploded. And the energy from that resulted in this thing that we know of as a black hole that when there's anything around its perimeter, it gets sucked into the black hole and it cannot escape. It could be something like that that God is intending, outer darkness, one giant black hole in a new universe that perhaps He'll be creating for one purpose. Retaining those who have rejected him. Maybe. I don't want to have to anybody that I know go there. It's my desire that God's will be done, that none should perish.
None. But we all know that many will. Don't stop praying for your loved ones. The time is short. I don't know how many days we've got left on this earth. But when we're gone, what Paul is describing here is going to become a reality for all who are left. So that's why he says in verse 10, In that day, when He comes, His glory and His power will be revealed. And when it comes in that day, He will be glorified in His saints and will be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Has Paul's testimony among us been believed by every heart here today? I pray that that is so. And if it is, he gives this statement to all. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, this is my hope, my prayer for you all. That God would count you worthy. He said the same thing in verse 5. I kind of glossed over it, but I want to reemphasize. Paul is saying, I'm praying that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom. It's Paul's desire in verse 11. It's my desire here in this place that you all would be counted worthy to escape that which is going to come upon this earth. It's my desire to convey these truths to the church while I have breath, while I am enabled by the Spirit of God to proclaim His word of truth. I want to stand here before you all proclaiming that God's will shall be done. And He will accomplish it in His time. Are you in Christ? Is He in you? If you have that assurance, then you have this promise. God counts you as being worthy to enter into His presence and live forever in His presence as a child of God. The other option is so, so very, very terrible. Who would want it? Only those who say there is no God. May God help them. The truth is here. It's available to all. It must be received and applied. It must be believed. It must be in Christ that we stand.